You wake up in the morning, you know, you're just wearing your pajama top at no bottom. <laughs> you know, you go over to the stove, you, 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 you throw a case grinder into the, into, the, into the pan and you're... Exactly, exactly. And it starts like spitting molten, molten cheese at your genitals. <laughs> Come on, you've never cooked bacon while naked? <laughs> Come on. Who hasn't? Am I the only guy? <laughs> You, you learn a valuable lesson cooking bacon while naked. You learn to wear an apron. It seems obvious, but... Hello and welcome to the James Bond Complex. I'm your host, the Intrepid 007. Hope you're all doing well. Uh, today, a little bit of a different kind of episode, a little bit of a change of pace. Um, I'm going to try and convince you that Anthony Bourdain and Ian Fleming are actually quite, quite similar. And I've actually gotten some help with me today. And we've got the wonderful Roland Hulme here. How's it going, Roland? Um, thank you. Very wonderful. I like that as an introduction. Did I mess up your name? Because I wasn't no, sure what the wonderful. Line. You said the wonderful Roland Hume, and I was like, "Oh wow, nothing called that before." <laughs> yeah, celebrated author Roland Hume, um, Bond aficionado Roland Hume. I, I can think of all kinds of ones if you want. We can edit that out later. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's uh, it is great to great to be here, and I've been a big fan of everything you're doing, and like it's so. I love the way James Bond as a connection. Uh, always brings people together from so many different backgrounds and places and things. We always find things in common. So, yeah, I was really excited when you came up with this thesis about how similar Anthony Bourdain and Ian Fleming were. So I was really, really happy that you made me a part of it. Well, I'm, I'm glad you, you joined in. And we actually have Frank kind of to, to thank for this because he was the one who kind of... See, Frank, if you don't know who that is, it's uh, he goes by Hans Gruber on Instagram and he's uh, part of the Bond community. He's uh, always posting these fantastic cocktails. He's part of some weekly cocktail club and he's always got these cocktails and Friday night is pizza night. So um, he kind of started this chat where he was talking about the new Anthony Bourdain film. He knew I was a fan. I didn't know you were a fan of Anthony Bourdain at all. I, it's funny. I guess it's it's one of those things that you find out about somebody, and then it's like it, re, it really brings people together because I think he had such an amazing way of expressing himself um, as a writer and just as a human being. The you know the people who get him really really get him, and that means they get each other. Absolutely, because I'm I'm not familiar. I'm familiar with with the fact that he has uh, a few books out, and I know that his first book was the one that was really. Um, the edgier one because that was kind of how he detailed his life working through you know the that um, New York uh, French brasserie um, I'm trying to remember the I'm trying to remember the name oh, of the restaurant Lizal uh, I knew it was Lizal but it was it was kind of like at the back of my mind how he worked through that and he you know he was addicted to cocaine he was you know he had drinking issues he had all kinds of issues in his personal life but he was also this like burgeoning budding chef. Um, and then became probably one of my favorite TV hosts of all time. I mean, he's got his body of work is just so extensive. It is. And what is it about him that, uh, that resonated with you when you kind of like first saw him on TV? It's, it's, it's his general attitude towards life. He just seems so humble and, you know, of a lot of his, his TV work, um, 
it wasn't no reservation was it no reservations that i'm thinking of there was the one series of of shows where the producers would give him a travel guide for each place he was going and you know he was just making fun of it the whole time where he was just making stuff up as he went along because there was some stuff that he was going to a place and he didn't give you know to be to be really frank and, and to be really um you know in the spirit of anthony bourdain he didn't give a shit like he didn't give a shit about a lot of the places he was going to or a lot of the history he just he had his focus things that he wanted to do and i found that in thrilling cities it was kind of the same thing yeah and i mean i think you just nailed like the first obvious similarity is that uh, ian fleming when he writes about meals and going places and stuff it's not always uh, you know, the Waldorf Astoria or the Ritz or whatever. He writes about real places and real food and food that is specific to that locale and that culture. And Anthony Bourdain, of course, was like that on steroids. It's like everywhere he went, he wanted to eat the street food and the, the local dishes and, and really tie it into what that said about the culture that he was visiting, which again is something that Ian Fleming does in every book. You know, we almost enjoy the different exotic locations we go to through his descriptions of the food. Right. It's it's you're taking a break away from reality and, you know, you, you visit, you, you're able to experience what everyone else experiences in that country. It's not just, you know, that one thing that they're known for. He kind of was able to find all these delicacies. Uh, a good example is in, in, in From Russia With Love, where he goes to Turkey and you discover all those kind of Turkish dishes that... If you think, I can't even think of a, a Turkish dish right off the top of my head other than Turkish delight. And I'm not even sure that's actually Turkish, you know? <laughs> Joe, I've heard on good authority from Fleming Never Dies that Turkish delight is indeed Turkish. Okay. But yeah, that, that's what I loved about From Russia With Love, especially because he really did paint such a vivid like image of uh, what it was like to, to be in Turkey. And I think the film translated that very, very well, too. And it's just yes. the little things. It's like James Bond ordered his coffee in the, the local fashion, uh, medium sweet. And he ate a breakfast that was like local to that thing instead of his ubiquitous scrambled eggs. So I found that kind of interesting. And he also never complained about it. I mean, uh, if you, uh, um, we reread uh, on the complex here, Live and Let Die for the uh, Fleming second edition set of episodes we were doing. And then I did a whole separate episode on the 12 meals that he has in Live and Let Die because he, he literally eats 12 separate meals in that book. And Bond only, he complains once or twice and it's in Florida. I think he doesn't have such a good time. Um, but like he'll eat whatever like do they just give me the food i'll eat it and that's that's what we're having and anthony bourdain i kind of find has somewhat been the same he's never on camera discusses how he doesn't like a dish it's he'll he's just happy to eat what's local yeah and as it comes and i mean living in america i find you know americans as a culture it's very much like i want to order this but i want the dressing on the side i want this um substituted for this and i want french fries instead of mashed potatoes and it's and that's completely different to the way he did things which was you know bring it as it comes but i think that's very intrinsic to new york as well i mean i have this theory that ian fleming and anthony bourdain are the same person if ian fleming had been born in um a kind of rich part of uh, new york and had a kind of this similar privileged upbringing just the the american attitude is so different to the british attitude Oh, I mean, it is. I mean, I, I can't really 
comment too much on that because I'm still in North America and we still kind of follow a lot of, you know, traditional Americanisms. So I don't know from your perspective, you know, you're kind of not alienated, but you've been um, in French, we have a term called dépaysé. So when you go to somewhere like you're, it's, you're not in your comfort zone when it comes to, to what you're eating. Um, that's kind of what Fleming did anytime he traveled. But I mean, for you going from England and the custom of this is what you're eating, Whereas in America, it's like, well, I want this, 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 change this for this, and you get it kind of your way. Yeah, but it's funny. I almost think New York City itself is an exception to that rule, though, because when you're in New York City and you hang out with somebody who lives there, they are always saying like, okay, dude, I've got to take you to this hole in the wall Chinese place down on uh, like Bleecker Street. Or else it's like there is this one rest, uh, Italian restaurant on the corner of Modern Hester. You have to go here. And they always have stories about it. And every single type of food you can possibly imagine is there in New York. And then you go to somewhere like Arkansas and it's like chilies, Applebee's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I could, I completely get your point. I mean, there's some places um, even here um, that, that like you got that multiculturalism in, in Montreal and in Quebec city, especially um, you, you get a lot of multiculturalism and you got a lot of different, you know, types of restaurants, a little hole in the wall restaurants, but you go into Ontario and I know I don't want to have any hate on my friends in Toronto, <laughs> but when I went to Toronto two years ago, um, I found myself having a difficult time uh, enjoying my meals because there wasn't really any, even just the, the fast food and the, 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 you know, the, the family sit down restaurants. The only place I was really satisfied with my meal was Red Lobster. Everything else was kind of just like, subpar to me and there wasn't that much maybe i'm just being ignorant but i just didn't find that there was that much variety as compared to like a, a metropolis like montreal or uh new york and i know people from toronto are really gonna hate me for what i just said <laughs> but uh, maybe i just didn't go to the right spots maybe a jeff weibo needed to take me out and show me where to go but um i, I kind of see that similarity too between the two cities yeah, and actually Montreal is, has exactly that vibe. It's like I used to live in Paris and then I was living in New York and it's like Montreal was almost like a bridge between the two. So, you know, you could get your big greasy American burger, but you could also have a, a carafe of uh, red wine with it. And, right. like, there was the, and there's Chinatown, that huge Chinatown gate and you go in and it yeah. is like, like New York. That's and the one thing we don't have. It. Yeah, and then the, having the two languages too is is uh, is, and I mean Quebec City, it's even you're even more French, and it's even more that kind of European attitude. There's so many French bistros here. Um, when you come, whenever eventually, when you want to come up to Quebec City, you're you're more than welcome. I'll show you around. Uh, I would is, love that. Quebec City is 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 great for that. Um, and speaking of Montreal, uh, Anthony Bourdain, when he visits Montreal on. I believe it was on No Reservations. I think there's, there's that that's the one episode that I you, you kind of for me because it was my hometown kind of realized well this he really gets it like he really understands what the culture is at a place where he's going to um, and there's one particular scene where he's in the back of a pickup truck in the bed of the pickup truck drinking beer with the two guys from Joe Beef which is a very popular <laughs> restaurant in Montreal and they're driving down St. Catherine street. And if you know, Montreal uh, for, for the people listening uh, driving down St. Catherine street in a pickup truck is, is a big thing because the downtown Montreal, there's not a lot of cars, like not a lot of people driving. The people who are driving, they're either taxis or they're small cars. So if you're driving downtown in full visibility of everyone drinking beer in the back of a pickup truck, you are a badass. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, Canada has a different breed of badass, I think. It's like in America, yeah. it's like, oh, I wrestled a grizzly bear or something. And it's like, Canada, I, I wrestled a polar bear while riding a moose. Uh, yeah, that's... A- <laughs> <laughs> is this a horrible, insulting, offensive, <laughs> in, offensive stereotype of Canadian yeah, listen, people? Listen, we've already insulted Toronto. And you've insulted Canada. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the American now. <laughs> Maybe not Do go there. It, <laughs> complete aside, uh, there is a world record for the shortest ever stand-up comedy uh, routine, which lasted 15 seconds. And the American comedian was in Saskatoon or something like that. And then he got up on stage and his opening lines were, Hey, moose fuckers. And then he got knocked out, and therefore that is the world's shortest stand-up comedy routine. I, I believe it. I absolutely believe it because in Saskatoon they're 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 pretty. Uh, I'd have to say, but most of Western Canada they're they're pretty tough um, individuals. It's a shame that um, that Fleming never really used Canada to its full potential. He visited a couple of times, but he never really used um, Canada as a backdrop as as a real to its full potential that it could have been. Yeah, and I wonder if that was part of part of the attitude that he might have had towards Canada, where it was like a almost sort of a because it was an extension of Britain at the time. It still was when he visited, because I mean, he only really his his real visits were in 1943 for the um, the first Quebec conference um, that was called Quadrants that they were planning the invasion of Europe. And then he went off to Toronto and, and visited Camp X and did all that where he kind of failed the Camp X experiments. And there's no real record of him meaningfully coming back other than um, to a part of Quebec that I covered in, a, in an episode previously. There's no real record of him ever coming and visiting anything else other than flying into Montreal and then going somewhere else. Yeah, and it's it's interesting the way sort of travel worked in his life. Because, um, you know, Jamaica is a big location that he went to. But of course, you know, he went there in 1942 for that uh, Anglo-American conference and kind of just fell in love with the place. And America, obviously, he spent a lot of time in. Um, he knew kind of Turkey and Russia and things. But there are other places that, that, you know, he didn't seem to have any interest or opportunity to go in. Whereas Anthony Bourdain just seems to like to want to go everywhere. Exactly. Anywhere there's pork is where Anthony Bourdain wanted to be. <laughs> and you get like when the, the locales that, that Bourdain does visit in um, both no reservations or uh, I even like the layover sometimes for for those episodes, because when he goes to Hong Kong um, in one of the episodes of the layover, I kind of saw a direct correlation with uh, thrilling cities because in thrilling cities, Fleming also goes to Hong Kong. And he's only there for a few days as well. And they both mention Hong Kong tailors. And yeah. Bourdain is almost like sarcastically going to get himself a suit made uh, because yeah, I think he said he, he even said he was getting the suit made to piss off his mother or his mother-in-law or something like that <laughs> with how audacious it was going to be. And the fact that he can get a tailored suit made in less than 48 hours. And Fleming had mentioned the same thing. And that was in 1962. Yeah. And, and, you know, a lot of at the Bond community, I know there are a lot of people who rely on uh, tailors from Hong Kong and stuff like that. Though they even come out and visit you in London or whatever, and you can get your your measurements done and stuff, and get this beautifully produced suit mailed to you that is a fraction of the price of Savile Row. I used to get emails uh, at my old at my <laughs> old job. I would get emails from Hong Kong tailors, and at the time, I was like, "This is ridiculous. This can't be real. Like, who who would actually do this?" And then. 
well, I guess Ian Fleming would. I guess Anthony Bourdain would. So I guess it's actually a thing. <laughs> they have a website you can go to where you can sort of design it and they mock it up. And I remember going there and doing one and it had like, it was double-breasted with eight buttons. And I was like, no, this is too much like Austin Powers. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, like you get into to that kind of stuff and it's like the, the similarities just that the, they start to become never ending. There are a lot of differences. I mean, Anthony Bourdain is a big fan of eating street food. I can't see Fleming eating something that comes out of a cart. Yeah, I don't think I could either. I mean, I, I find the similarities in the way they were they were both raised. So they both came from like moderately well-off backgrounds, but not ridiculously so. Fleming always had like a chip in his shoulder because he was upper middle class rather than like lower upper class. And right. Anthony Bourdain got grew up in like a, a really nice part of New Jersey and he went to this progressive uh, school where it was very much into like liberal arts and things like that. He went to, to Vassar and then he left and he, it's like he followed, he followed his dream to, to go and work in restaurants and stuff, almost like just to experience life. And I think that's something you can do uniquely in America that you can't in England. I think Ian Fleming was very much driven by, you know, what he was expected to do and what the conventions of the time were. And I have, I could go on for hours about how I think he had this, this weird relationship with his mother and he had to please his mother. Mm. So I think, you want to talk about that one in the next episode we do together? Because that's a whole other ball of wax. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the two but, um, Ian Fleming biographies that I've read, uh, the one by Pearson and the one by Lysett, uh, you get that creepy what's going on with his mother vibe. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Ian Fleming could have been exactly like Anthony Bourdain if he had been brought up in a very liberal community in uh america in the 1970s and he was affluent and he had like such a unique there's such a unique sense of freedom in new york it's like you could, i remember right. my first week in new york i was walking down the streets and this six foot tall dude was wearing tighty whities and angel wings and no one looked at him and it was almost like in new york if you looked at him you were you were giving him attention it's like you can dress like an angel i ain't treating you no different <laughs> that's a pretty good uh, you do a pretty good uh, new york accent <laughs> You've, you've gotten you've acclimated yourself to the culture <laughs> well I, it's funny because when i first arrived in america yeah i i was almost like adopted by this uh this jewish businessman and like his business was sending kids uh from uh high school to programs in, in like penn state university and there was one in paris and i was in charge of the paris program but it was so interesting like being adopted into what america was like when i came here instead of having the tourist experience because I like right. ate in people's houses and things. And when you read the descriptions of the meals that Ian Fleming has and Anthony Bourdain's, like, they have different writing styles, but the way they go into sort of how the food and the conversation almost blend together until they're all part of one, you can really get a sense of what that culture is like. And I was kind of, I, it always resonated, both of them always resonated with me because that was my experience in America. It was like eating in people's homes, going to these hole of the wall places in uh, in downtown manhattan and it was uh, it was just great to like have a not the tourist experience not necessarily following the yelp reviews and going to this place or that place but finding out on your own culturally where do the locals eat yeah because i love the stories of them. i mean I, I mentioned there was that italian restaurant there was this guy who was undercover with the fbi for seven years trying to hunt out the mafia and uh at the end of it 
he wrote an article for the New Yorker called the 13 best mafia restaurants. And there was one on the corner of Modern Hester called Vincent's that used to be like the haunt of the Giambano crime family. And so whenever I was in New York, whenever any of my friends came to visit, I'd always take them there and tell them this story. And then, you know, it, it made the food taste better. Right. Yeah. 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 I can understand how that, you know, you, you've got the kind of the allure of we're in a shady place or, you know, this is kind of exclusive to this clientele. Yeah. Now, I think one of the interesting things about Anthony Bourdain is, you know, he was raised in a fairly privileged background and then he went to go and work as, you know, a kitchen cleaner in uh, in restaurants in, I think, it was, was it Rhode Island or Massachusetts? You know, he just wanted to. Yeah. just he wasn't afraid to to bum it and just you know go he wanted and work to learn the ropes people yeah he wanted to learn the ropes from the bottom up to to, to get to where he, he eventually got to yeah and i can't imagine ian fleming doing that it's like ian fleming kind of lucked into various positions that you know were they they were definitely he never had to you know be a, a street reporter uh, getting the the latest things, but he he always had the kind of privileged introduction to things. He he was able to do what he wanted, but at the same time, he was also handed a lot of um, privilege. Um, when yeah. he worked for his, when he worked in you know as a banker and as a stockbroker very briefly, uh, I mean he didn't want to do it, but that's what was presented to him. Whereas I think Anthony Bourdain knew what he wanted to do, but also didn't want to be handed something and he went and worked for it. So I think there may be a little bit of a difference there, but I mean, Fleming also had ambition to do other things that weren't part of what society. And when I say society, I mean, his mother wanted him to do. Yeah. I mean, I don't think he had much choice in it because I speak, one of the other things that resonated with me about Ian Fleming is it's like you come from a, a kind of constrictive uh, background in, in that particular class in England. And you you almost like rebel against it i found that you know trying to toe the line having the nine to five corporate job and doing what is safe and sensible and what is normal and what people approve of i as the older i got the less i could actually do that and so until i reached a breaking point where it's like okay if i don't become a writer and just do all these crazy creative things and hopefully make a living from them i'm gonna go crazy like i can't do a nine to five I, it just doesn't work i'm not that person and i think ian fleming had that experience and that's why you know he failed as a banker and he failed as a stockbroker and it was only writing and reporting that that really you know allowed him to to live his creative side and to be himself uh, essentially yeah, absolutely and for um for you uh you know the the whole for, for you just uh, when we're talking about travel and things like that for you was it moving to new york and moving to the states that really kind of broke that barrier for you to, to be able to to leave the confine, the confines to leave, you know, England behind and, and do something else in a new locale is the change of locale that changed everything for you. It was absolutely because we're growing up in England. My parents are very supportive of me, me writing, but they were, you know, they also were trying to instill in me that, you know, this isn't something that, that people make a living from, you know, this is a nice right. hobby. We encourage you, but you should get a proper job. You should go to college. You should do something sensible. And when I went to America, it was like, I could be anything, I can do anything. And there's, there just isn't that same class, class structure that you have. You know, you could, in America, the, the janitor used to fist bump with the president of the United States, Obama, because even though one mopped floors, he didn't necessarily see himself as less than the president. There's a, 
a sense of equality in America that you don't have in England. In England, people always look down on somebody or look up to somebody. Right. So it's very much still a class system. Yeah. Whereas Bourdain, whenever he went anywhere, he was mingling with both. Like he was, he would go out with this upper class and have that upper crust experience of, of food and of, of fine dining. But, you know, 20 minutes later in the episode or, or wherever he is, he's eating hot dogs on the street. Yeah. I think his career is quite interesting because you notice, you know, he's a chef, which is kind of like a tough ballsy thing to do, but he, right from the very get go, he had his family connections because he was reasonably uh, affluent. So he could work mm-hmm. as a, a lineman in like a, a pretty decent restaurant in Massachusetts. And then he went to the uh, school of culinary arts, of course, which, means that when he actually entered the restaurant business it was for some of the best and and brightest and and uh most uh, privileged of the the restaurants in new york rather than working as a line cook in like applebee's or something right which and he brought really certain... culinary experience you know let's <laughs> reheat these frozen ribs <laughs> not to dish out on applebee's we don't have them here in in quebec so i can't really i've only eaten at applebee's once but i know what you guys are doing <laughs> so if, yeah. if you go to the, the school of culinary arts website and you see like our most prestigious graduates and of course anthony bourdain is there but you look at other people and they're like young young chefs who are like masters of molecular gastronomy and mm. and it's it's almost like a very arty arty school of uh restaurant theory whereas all the times i used to work in places you know you get yelled at by the chefs and they throw spoons at you and it's a, it's a weird environment there's he's got to a certain extent he's an artist and then at the same time he's doing one of the the dirtiest jobs of the business right but through that i mean he i think he he appreciates where the food is coming from even more yeah absolutely i mean i was reading a bunch of his articles before we had this and you know there was one where he's talking about how fish are bought on friday night and by saturday and sunday hopefully the chef sold most of them but that means on monday when you get the the special and the fish it's always going to be dripping in sauce and it's so interesting yeah. when you you see the logistics behind it as well as the artistry and the standards and things so what are the other things that i find a similarity actually there's two things there's only one time that i can remember um seeing anthony bourdain cook on television and that was when he did an episode in Los Angeles and he was in his hotel room and he cooked the most Fleming thing ever. And he cooked scrambled eggs. Oh, yeah. I actually remember that because I remember when I got in, got into eating scrambled eggs, I was like Googling all the different recipes. And I remember watching that video of how he made it. It's so interesting how different people can prepare the same basic staple foods. Right. And there's you, you can even go back to 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 get it even more British. You see Gordon Ramsay. There's tons of videos of Gordon Ramsay screaming at people about not being able to make scrambled eggs. And there's really those two schools of of how to make it. And my parents made it with with milk. Uh, and then when I got double uh, seven in New York in, in the, the short story in um, in Octopussy in the Living Daylights, um, I see he's you know, all that butter and I huge amount of butter, isn't it? huge amount of butter, but I can't make eggs any other way. Now, if I make scrambled eggs, <laughs> that's how I'm making it. I can't make it with milk anymore. Um, it just doesn't taste the same to me anymore. Cause I've discovered that Ian Fleming knows his shit. Like this is how you make scrambled yeah. eggs. And then I saw Anthony Bourdain do it. I'm like, Oh, sour cream. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's not milk either, but that's not butter. How's that going to turn out? And that was, to me, it was just a perfect, 
that's what Fleming would do. If Fleming was bored or James Bond didn't know what to eat, he'd eat scrambled eggs. And that was just Bourdain's doing the same thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I love it. I could eat scrambled eggs at, at any time. It's one of those things. And it is so interesting how people have it. My mother makes it with milk and it's kind of like almost like a sauce. Whereas I do right. the same thing as you. I do like the Ian Fleming recipe. So it's just swimming in butter. And then I like to crack um, uh, the sea salt crystals, the big chunky sea salt crystals. Ooh. You crack a few of those on and then they crunch when you eat them. Mm. Oh, okay. I've got to change my recipe for tomorrow morning. Um, <laughs> the other thing that... Um, fortunately or maybe unfortunately that they both had in common uh was bourbon uh you know yeah. big bourbon drinker uh i don't think there's an episode of any of his shows or in any of the things he mentioned where he's not drinking bourbon for anthony bourdain and he it was pappy van winkle i think that was his brand um yeah and that's a very rare difficult to get brand I I, i've never seen it in in any liquor store i don't even know if they ship them to canada i know that buffalo trace is the same distillery uh, for them, and I bought a uh, a bottle of Buffalo Trace on rec- uh, on a recommendation from uh, Ray Crumpled of the Bond Armory. And if if Pappy Van Winkle is anything like that, or I, I, maybe I'm saying the name wrong, but I mean, great bourbon, great choice. Yeah, Ray always Ray knows his stuff. Oh, his barbecue is amazing. Oh, yeah, I, mean, I don't know. I've never actually eaten it, but I've seen all his videos, and they make me all oh, the things he posts. It makes me hungry. Uh, so I'll edit this part out, but me and Ray have actually been talking about doing a cookbook <laughs> just oh. like on the side because we're talking about barbecue all the time. And I'm actually, you know, we, he, he's got his setup when we're, we're exchanging recipes and things like that. But we've kind of low key talked about doing um, a Bond community cookbook eventually for, for charity. So that that might be coming. But Ray is uh, Ray Crumpled is is he's got such a. Um, He's got such a uh, uh, an inviting personality. He's such a great guy to talk to. He's got such um, he's so open to everything and trying different things. I mean, just not with with the food. Uh, just this week, he was he he wrote me um, because he'd gone to a, a jujitsu class. Oh, I didn't know that. Which Anthony Bourdain, of course, was a competitive uh, jujitsu. <laughs> right, which I always found to be a little bit. Um, because I mean, he started at such a uh, an older age. I mean, he he started. I think he was in his late forties, early fifties, because of his second wife doing uh, uh, Brazilian. He was an MMA fighter, wasn't she? Yes, she was exactly. Uh, but I mean, he started competing as well, and I didn't know he was he had actually competed because we saw him in one episode where he does it, and he's kind of he goes through it awkwardly, and he's. You know, he's learning the ropes. I think it was a, he was a white belt at the time, but he, he got up there in the ranks and he was fighting competitively in his age group. Yeah. I, I did it a few years ago. I stopped and I like had a few, like a few lessons, never did anything like that, but it's really fun. It's almost like chess because it's so cerebral. So I think it's kind of interesting. Very strategic. Yeah. It's not, um, it's not like, um, I mean, I do, I do um, Kempo karate which has got some jujitsu elements, but it's still karate. So it's still striking. Um, and it's not as cerebral. It's, it's more, there is some aspects to it, but it's more striking, like, you know, hit the head, you know, kick, block, get away. Whereas jujitsu is more, you know, the holds and, and et cetera. Uh, and, and you really got to think on your feet a little more. Yeah. 
It's funny when we were talking about bourbon and we went into Brazilian jiu-jitsu. <laughs> yeah, well, it's you know, it's uh, but I mean, Ian Fleming. I don't think he was. I don't think Ian Fleming really knew much about self-defense, to be perfectly honest. Because choosing judo as self-defense for Bond, I think, was maybe a little. I don't want to say silly, but I don't think it would be. So as I tell effective. you why that. I'll tell you why that was. It was a weird upper middle class thing that was huge in the the. 50s 60s and 70s my brother because i come from sort of like the same sort of uh social background as ian fleming and my brother okay. did judo and it's like i love it. austin powers does the the judo chop which of course you don't have a chop in judo right but it's like it was always making fun of judo it's like such a such a cheesy 60s british uh martial arts which isn't really effective at anything Right. And I mean, I think for if you, you take it to America, it would be kind of, you know, karate in the late 80s, early 90s with all the, uh, you know, you had three ninjas, you had Karate Kid. Um, I'm trying to think there was one with Hulk Hogan, I think, that had a, a karate element to it or a ninja. I think they just put ninja on anything in, in the United States and that would that would sell. And, you know, you'd get all these, they call them McDojos, where you could just basically, you you go and you pay for the lessons, but you're almost paying for the belt. You're not actually earning them, like in other martial arts. Yeah, you're just turning up and after a while you get the belt. Yeah, you know, you, you do 12 weeks and the end of 12 weeks we give you a belt. Where that doesn't, it doesn't work like that in a real, you know, I, <laughs> I, do, not. I do a real karate setting. And, you know, if I do, if I did 12 weeks, then it's like, okay, you did 12 weeks. But, yeah. you know, it took me a while to earn to where I'm at now. It took me a while to get there. And, you know, that's not it's not pay and you get your belt and it doesn't mean anything afterwards. Um, but like uh, judo is com- state competitive. It's the one that stayed in the Olympics the longest. We've just, 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 just got karate in it now and taekwondo every once in a while. But um, I didn't know that about judo, how, how, how big it was in, uh, in the UK in the uh, in the 50s. That's, I, you're right. It was exactly like karate was in like the 80s and 90s uh, in America. <laughs> and I that's, that's a silly, silly time. Because I mean, even now, like uh, my son watches uh, watches Cobra Kai, and it's like, is this really how it is in America <laughs> over karate? I mean, Jesus. That, um, but bourbon. So you, yeah, yeah Buffalo Trace. I love. I I love bourbon. I'm. I'm Scottish, like by by my parents being Scottish, even though I was raised in England. But I like Scotch whiskey. I really do. I used to sell it. It was one of my first jobs. But I prefer bourbon. Really? Because I I'm the opposite. Like I I, I do appreciate bourbon, and uh, me and a couple of friends, we we actually have this not weekly or monthly, but this regular thing where we do whiskey tastings. And for me, is Scotch has still been the top. We we did bourbon recently, and I do enjoy bourbon, but um i've fallen in love with scotch so i think part of it for me is um you know when i've had done cool stuff and had fun adventures in america normally wherever i go i will try and order like what the local bourbon is or something like that and right. normally these days with all these distilleries popping up they actually have them i was in wyoming and they have wyoming whiskey which is an awesome bourbon and then um there are all the amazing ones in in kentucky right now with the and there's the bourbon trail isn't there and yeah. i believe there's a story where somebody asked buffalo trace whether they wanted to be on the bourbon trail or not and they were like bitch we are the bourbon trail and they refused <laughs> to be part of the bourbon trail because they are the dominant beast there 
Well, it's kind of like Jack Daniels, them not being there. They're technically and in a legal standpoint, if you're looking at the definition, the legal definition of bourbon, Jack Daniels is a bourbon. But they went so far as to distinguish themselves from bourbon because they didn't want to be called bourbon because their process and their taste was so different that they got themselves classified as Tennessee whiskey. And I think besides them, there's only one other distillery that's allowed to use the appellation of, of Tennessee whiskey. That's interesting. Now, I love single malt scotches. I, mm-hmm. I, I sound like such a snob, but I don't like blended whiskeys anymore to the point that you could almost like uh, Johnny Walker Black. It, everyone's been drinking because it's in no time to die. And I tried some and I was just like, nah. I wouldn't drink it for pleasure. Whereas I kind of enjoy drinking even bad single malt, so even bad bourbons. You can buy some pretty bad small batch bourbons. But, yeah. cheap, but I still prefer drinking them because they got kind of like more character. See, we don't get that many here in, in Quebec in terms of um, in terms of bourbons. And we actually we, we get a lot less uh, in general uh, of the fancier alcohols like the um, the 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 rum from um, from Jamaica, the uh, oh, I mean, Blackwell's, the Blackwell rum. We don't get that here at all. Like, I don't think there's anywhere to send in- you a bottle. You won't be able to, and it'll be stuck in customs forever. Oh, I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah. But in Ontario and in Alberta, where, you know, some other uh, Bond fans in Canada live, they're able to get it, you know, quite regularly. But for some reason, we're kind of excluded from that. And, you know, cheaper bourbons and things like that, we don't necessarily get them. And even the cheaper scotches, we really only get, I'm trying to think of a really cheap blended scotch that we would get here uh the saint leger is maybe the maybe i'm pronouncing it too french but that's the only one that's really on the inexpensive bracket everything else is it starts with chivas and it starts with red label and black label and i, I don't hate blended scotches like uh, chivas regal I'll, I'll enjoy but once you've tasted a single malt you kind of like i can't go back i've got my brand now that that i buy all the time i can't not buy that single malt yeah i know and it's again to me it's it's a lot with the the stories behind them and i mean i was just actually thinking of one of the kind of anthony bourdain things i used to write blogs about wine and um i got invited to go to the rioca region of spain to blog about wine while they were filming a tv show there and before i went i was like oh i really don't like rioca wine it tastes kind of earthy it tastes kind of and then we went there and we went to 12 different bodegas, which are the, the wineries there. And I saw how the wine was made and I like tasted the grapes in this process. And then when they'd been aged for this long and then when they'd been oaked for this long. And afterwards now it's one of my favorite types of wine because you have the story behind why it's made. And I think single malts have that, whereas blended don't. No, I think blended is more uh, you're, you're paying for the name more than you're paying for the heritage behind it. Yeah, Absolutely. And so talking about wines, I mean, you know, you've got those great wine regions. Canada has wine too. It's just, yes. it's just not good. New Jersey is the same. Well, I've seen there's one that, that sells in stores now. And they, 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 I don't know if it's, if it's necessarily just us or if it's really everywhere where they do these kind of like crazy fruit flavored wines. Like I saw one that was blue and there was like a lemon lime flavored wine. And I'm thinking to myself, why are you buying that? That's not wine. Like buy 
those cheap <laughs> malt mixers. This is wine is I, I never used to before I met my wife, I didn't drink wine. I didn't drink coffee. Uh, I, I was strictly Jack Daniels and beer. And now we've got so many uh, gin distilleries in Quebec. Oh, yeah. Lots of gin. Lots and lots of gin. Like I That's think, my favorite amount of gin. I, I've got no less than six bottles of gin in the house right now, and they're all completely different. And one of them actually is uh, in the Montreal episode of, um, uh, I think it's No Reservations, when he's drinking in the back of the pickup truck, is he goes back to um, a traditional sugar shack, which is owned by a very prominent um, chef here in Quebec named Martin Picard. And he's got his own gin and it is just, it's, it's, it's so different than like, I, I tried to be fancy when I, when I started with the whole James Bond thing and I started really getting into it. I said, well, I'm going to make the Vesper exactly how it's described in the book. I'm going to go get Gordon's and I'm going to go get the, the Kinelile and I'm going to get all that. And I can't stand Gordon's gin. I just, no. I, I can't stand it. And then beef eater is this, to me, it's the same thing. It's a, a traditional London dry gin like that. I, I, I don't like it, but you get into all of these different classifications of gin that we have here. And it's, it's difficult to pinpoint, like, I can't use the same gin for two, the same drink. Like I can't use there. There's one gin here. There's a very citrus gin. I can't use that for a gin and tonic. I don't like it the same way as in a, in a gin and tonic as I do in a Vesper or in a, a regular martini or in something else. They're so different in character, a lot like um, single malt scotches. Yeah, I know. I, it's funny. My friend sent me a, an Ohio gin and it was done with chamomile or something. And it was literally one of the most revolting things I've ever had in my mouth. Well, uh, I think that's but... generally anything from Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> We had this discussion um, with uh, with Jason Kim recently in our in our chats, and we were talking trash talk at Ohio. I don't think anyone likes Ohio, even the people who are there. But LeBron James left. He must, you know. Oh God, yes. <laughs> now I find that so there are so many distilleries popping up, and the thing with yeah. uh, whiskey is you have to to age it for a certain period, like four right. years, and so a lot of them make gin to start off with because you can make that and infuse it and sell it pretty quickly. Right. Uh, and so I know, uh, which I think is really interesting and like all these gins are there, but there's one uh, distillery here in New Jersey in Asbury Park, which makes quote unquote bourbon. Um, and they had made all this gin. So they actually age the bourbon in gin barrels and it tastes revolting. I have to admit, I like the first time I had it, I grimaced. I love, I want to support this distillery, but aging whiskey in gin barrels is disgusting. no. no. No, why? Why? <laughs> yeah. uh, you get that juniper, piney taste, and no, Ugh, okay. Yeah. But I love how yeah, uh, there's a, a gin bar that I went to in London with my brother-in-law, and they have all the different types of gin, and they give you the little bottles, and they you can garnish it with different things. It's like if you have a dry London gin, it's a slice of lemon peel. Whereas if you have this thing, it's a uh, oh, what was it? It was like an orchid crest or something like that, and or cucumber or something like that. It is really amazing how, you know, the different ways you make gin and the way you garnish them can make such a difference. Well, it's like uh, there's, you know, you can have a gin and tonic with lime or you can have a gin and tonic with cucumber. It's almost two different drinks, but with the same kind of base ingredients. 
but you change the gin in one and you change the gin in the other. And it's, it's really two completely different drinks with the same kind of undertones. Yeah. My only requirement is gin. I moved to America and I didn't realize because gin and tonic was always my drink. Right. Their go-to gin is tanqueray and tanqueray is the one gin I do not like. So my, my order, whenever I order a gin and tonic, they say, what type of gin would you like? I'd be like anything with tanqueray. Yeah, it's, it's it's not very popular up here. I think uh, Bombay is a lot more popular here, and I prefer Bombay. Like I, I've had Tanqueray a couple of times, but um, as long as it's not Beefeater for me, <laughs> Beefeater is really struck on my list. Nope, nope, nope. Bombay is great. You know, the last time I had a bottle of Bombay, I was flying back from Bombay, and I, we actually got it from Duty Free in Mumbai. And it was a special English rose version that tasted exactly the same as the regular one, but <laughs> it, it was really was a nice bottle. to drink it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, sometimes it gets you with just the bottle, you know. Um, perfect. Well, hey, uh, thank you very much for, uh, for joining me uh, today, Roland. Yeah, what's coming up for you? What's, uh, what's on the docket? What's coming up next for, uh, for your adventures uh, in, in uh, novel writing? Do you have anything else coming up? So... Um, my my shtick is uh, I've been writing romance novels for a number of years under a pen name of which is Simone Scarlet, um, and just recently, I, some I, you know David Zurichsky's uh, wife Danielle read one of my books and said it was really good, and David read it and said it was really good, and that gave me the courage to actually pub, start publishing my books under my own name, even though they're romance novels, because I believe that. If you write romance, romance the, the style of a book is less important than the story. And if you have guns and explosions and boats, men will be interested in reading it too. So oh, yeah. that's kind of my, my thing. So I'm just continuing to, to write this. If you Google my name and uh, Roland Hume and go to Amazon, you'll see some of the, the things I've got there. And so many of them are very much Bond, uh, Bond-infused and Bond-inspired because that was why I got into writing. I wanted to tell the same adventure stories as as Ian Fleming and I just chose to write them in a different way but it's really fun to to try and emulate or try and follow in the footsteps of, of somebody like Ian Fleming who resonates with you so deeply with the the travel and the the uh, way he enjoyed luxury and things like that and and how did how did the motorcycle club part of it come about was that something that you're you're passionate about or is it just you know circumstantial it's, you know, it's, it's the complete reverse. It was almost an accident. So I um, had given up uh, my writing full time for a very little while to try and get a job in, to try and do a job in New York City. And I was hating myself for it. I was like, oh, I don't want to do this thing where I have to go into New York and have a nine to five job. I want to be a writer. So on the train, I wrote out this little story and I thought a motorcycle club with that rebellious spirit was kind of what I wanted to do. I wanted to escape and, and go away. I knew nothing about motorcycles or anything at that time. And now I've become really kind of quite invested in motorcycle club culture and Harley Davidson's. And uh, yeah, it, I really, really enjoy it. And uh, it's so fun to, to like write adventure stories, have all of these big characters and explore so many of the things that, that you don't get to, to explore in sort of traditional adventure fiction because it's written in a different way. And it's, you know, exactly what we look for when we pick up a James Bond novel or when we're reading Anthony Bourdain. It's we want that escapism. We want to get away from our boring nine to five like I do every day and read about something completely different. And um, I find writing is like therapy for me. And the thing that I mean, Anthony Bourdain's death and suicide really hit me harder than so many other celebrities 
yeah. uh, who died. And I think one of the things I enjoy about writing is I get to work out my own inner demons. And I think people appreciate when they read it, the ability to, to see their own inner demons validated. And I think that is something that Anthony Bourdain, like he just, he was so raw and honest and authentic. It was, it validated so many other people's issues with mental health and things. And uh, Ian Fleming himself, you know, he, James Bond was a very introspective character who is prone to depression and stuff. So I think the way they were so human in their writing mm-hmm. is one of the things that, that inspired me to, to write the way I did. And I think that's why they're so, they all have something in common. They were both writing from their inner tor- turmoil and the things that they, they, they had to exteriorize that a, a little bit for both of them. Absolutely. That's, um, that's, that's very insightful. I think that really kind of, I, I was, at first I was kind of having trouble of how I was going to put it together. This, this kind of concept of comparing two people who don't seem comparable and don't seem like they're, they're the same. You know, Anthony Bourdain was a TV host of a travel channel and CNN, you know, news type shows, informational shows. And Ian Fleming was the writer of the greatest series of spy novels of all time. But there's so many similarities and connections, and I'm really glad that you're, you're you were able to help you know express those with me, uh, Roland. Uh, thank you very much for your time today. Oh, it was a great pleasure. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciated being a part of it, and it was a great, great, great question to ponder. Well, thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Intrepid Double Seven podcast here on the James Bond Complex. Please follow us on our social media accounts at the James Bond Complex and at 007 Intrepid on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Until then, thanks for listening.